Friends, we got trouble. Right here in River City, we have trouble. Marriage is in trouble. And I want to show you some statistics that can help you to see, if you aren't aware of this, that marriage is in big trouble. People are having more and more trouble having relationship. So what I have here for you is a chart showing marriages and divorces. This was put together by the sociologists Stevenson and Wolfers. And this goes back to 1860. So from 1860 to 2005, we see the trend here. This is the number, the solid line, is the rate of new divorces per 1,000 people. Okay, so it's not kind of based on just the population, it's a rate. Number of new divorces per 1,000 people, 1,000 Americans. The dashed line is the number of new marriages. And what you can see from this, if you look at it, there are some spikes, like after World War II, a big spike in marriages and correspondingly divorces. Um, but overall, what you see here is a very disturbing trend. And that is the divorces are going up, that the number of divorces from 150 years ago has quadrupled. And at the same time, you see in the, in the dashed line that marriage is as low, the number of marriages, the number of people getting married is as low as it's ever been, um, going back even to 1860. I could show you a different chart. This is from the U.S. Census Bureau. And this is from the, since the 1940s, showing the types of households that are in America. And what we can see here, the top line is the number of households that are based on a marriage, married households. What we see is that 2010 was a, was a very significant year because in that year, 2010, married couples for the first time made up less than half of all households in this country. So 2010, that's when it happened, went below, to, went below 50%. One more I can give you, and that is to look at this from the standpoint of people and who they live with. And there's been a trend here, not a lot of people have been paying attention to this, but more and more people are living alone. Uh, in 1950, 4 million Americans lived alone. Today, it's over 32 million Americans live alone, just by themselves. Now, that's a significant percentage, about 28% of our population. It's one in every seven adults. And that's overall, if you go into urban areas, you find that number is much higher. So in places like uh, Atlanta or Denver or Minneapolis or San Francisco, it's over 40%. And in Manhattan, it's 50%. It means 50% of the households in Manhattan are one-person households. So it's not even, you know, cohabitation is bad news enough. It really wrecks your life. But it's not even cohabitation anymore. It's like people cannot live with one another. And some sociologists have looked at this and said, well, you know, let's, it's just a bold new world. It's just people making different decisions about their lives. And that is an utterly ridiculous way to interpret this. 
what it's showing is that people are having trouble having and entering into and staying in relationships. I can't look at these kind of charts without the words of Jesus Christ coming to mind when he spoke about the end times. In Matthew 24, he said, you know, when it gets to be the end times, there's going to be a lot of hatred between people. And the way that he put it is, this is a, well, it was very poetic. He said, the love of people, the love of many will grow cold. But look at this and say, what are we seeing? The love of many growing cold. Now, we think about why this is. I guess it's not too hard to figure out. Um, marriage is hard. I don't know if you've kind of figured that out, those of you who've gotten married, but it's tough. It's very difficult to take two people in this world and bring them together and have them live together. As marvelous as it is, and it is marvelous, it's very hard. It's very hard to maintain. There has to be something under there that maintains it for two people to get together and stay together. You know? I can tell you, like someone like me, I'm a nice guy, right? Now, this is when you're supposed to shout out, Amen, in the sermon. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll tell you, I am a nice guy. Okay, I can easily get along with people and, you know, do things for people. I like other people and stuff. I thought this about myself until I got married. When I got married, I found out how selfish I was. I found out how, you know, other people's concerns <laughs> actually bothered me. I bothered other people. I know, it's amazing. I'm such a nice guy, right? That was when I got married. When I had children, that's when I found out how really selfish I was. How, I, how other people's difficulties really did bother me. As so I wasn't so focused on other people. I realized how focused I was on myself. Then when I became a pastor, <laughs> you know, now you can shout amen. And that's when I found out really what was in my heart. When God asked me to care about other people for a living, to care about people is what I do, then I found out um, the depths of my depravity. Because it's tough. It's tough living with other people. You know, if there's one thing that should prove to us the truth of the doctrine of original sin, it should be getting married. <laughs> because of what it's like. As, 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 and I could rhapsodize, and I do rhapsodize about marriage, and I will rhapsodize about marriage, the wonders of it. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it's hard. And what we're seeing here is what you might expect, actually, if you kind of looked at what it would be, what it's like to live with other folks. So, in our time, it's crucial for us to understand now why we marry, where relationship comes from, and so how to live in relationship. And that's what I want to try to do with us this morning. So, please stand as you're able and we'll read from the beginning. That's the book of Genesis. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then I'm going to skip to some verses from chapter 2. So uh, this is edited, but it, it actually put these verses together. It kind of makes the story. 
for us. This is Genesis chapter 1. You can read in your Bibles or you can, we printed it in the bulletin for you. And this is the ESV version. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then, later, the Lord Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. So we're going back to the beginning. Let us return to where relationships come from. And what we find is that God made humanity, made man in his own image. So God created, in verse 27 there, Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a look at this and, 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 and thought about what it is that makes the image of God. I don't know if you've ever kind of said, well, you know, what is it that actually constitutes the image of God in us? And if you've ever taken, you know, tried to think about that, you're not alone. You're in good company. Because it turns out that down through the millennia, many people have looked at that verse and tried to say, what is it that that constitutes the Imago Dei? What is it that, that separates us from angels and animals? What is it that makes us the image of God? And what I want to try to do this morning is just briefly give you basically the the three basic answers that have come out of that thinking. Three answers that people have given. And, you know, this is a very broad brushstroke that I'm giving you. I'm painting you this picture. But you can basically categorize the answers that people have given in these three categories, in these three ways. What is it that makes the image of God? Well, the first answer in the early church that uh, was prominent was that God had certain attributes and we share some of those attributes. And so theologians would would make lists of the attributes of God, and I think our kids have learned some of them in Sunday school. And we notice that God is a certain way, and we share those attributes. Some of them are communicable, they say. Some of them are incommunicable. But it's things that 
that God has. Like God is omniscient and he's all-knowing. And in, in a similar way, we know some things. We're not all-knowing, but we know some things. So we share that attribute of God. We have knowledge. Lord, God is kind. He has kindness. And we, we can be kind sometimes. So, you know, we're like God that way. And God has a will for things to happen. So we have wills for things to happen. So you get to all of these attributes, moral attributes and, and attributes of, of uh, inter- in things that God has going on. And we, and we have some of them too. And so that's the, what it means to be in the image of God. And, you know, I think there's some credence to that, right? It makes sense. Um, but uh, other folks came along and said, you know, that's a very Greek way to think, especially kind of after the classical period. They came along and said, that's a pretty Greek way to think, you know, in terms of these abstract abstract nouns and attributes. And they said, let's go back and look at how maybe the original audience uh, would think about what this meant. Because they probably didn't think in those terms, the original audience, when they read that they were made in the image of God. And with the rise of biblical theology, this other answer became prominent in church history. And that is that in the ancient Near East, which is what the audience would be familiar with, you had kings. And kings, when they wanted to establish their dominion, would make these statues. And they would put them up all over the place. And, you know, if you go around the ancient Near East, archaeologists have uncovered these. And they're all over the place. There are these statues of, of these kings. And if you were a king, you would make a whole bunch of these statues. You'd try to make a lot of them. And you try to put them up all over your empire to show where you were in charge, right? So you would put them as far as you could go that would show this is my land where I'm in charge. So people, when they come into your land, they're like, okay, well, there he is. We know who's, who's in charge here, who has dominion here. And so there would, they would multiply a lot of these and they put them up as far as they could. And, and that begins to sound like what's going on in Genesis, doesn't it? If we, we didn't read the rest of it, but you keep reading in Genesis 1, it says, God says, now that I've made my image, let them have dominion, right, over the things that I've made, over the birds and the, and the animals, and over the earth that I've made. And so people said, you know, that's really what makes the image of God in us, is that we are able to take dominion over his earth, over, over the things that he's made. And that by, by being his subordinate rulers, you know, we're kind of like walking statues that go around. So people, you know, the universe could look at us and say, ah, we know who is, has dominion here. It's the, the Almighty, the one who created them, right? That makes sense, right? I think that's not without credence. It's uh, there. It's certainly true that we do exercise control of the thing that, things that God has made. And when we, we rule over them wisely, when we're good stewards, it shows, it shows God, the image of God that way. Now, how many uh, different um, categories did I say there were? Three. How many have I done? Oh, good. So there's one more, right? There's one more. And that's people, uh, after that, kind of said, you know, let's go back to that verse and read what it actually says. And if you go back to that verse and read it again, you find that God said, I'm, I'm going to make 
this thing in my image. And he creates man in his image, and he creates male and female. And so the very smart people, thinkers and spiritual people, said, you know, it could be that really what constitutes the image of God is being in relationship. Because he makes this image, apparently, in two flavors, and then the flavors come together, and their being in close relationship in a community together says something about who God is, says something very important. As we've learned ever since Christ came, especially in the revelation of the New Testament, that God has community within himself. So this is the third answer that what it means to be the image of God is to be in relationship. Now this idea is substantiated by what follows in that verses we read after this. You know, we give this, God says he's going to make this image, and he makes it in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 elaborates on this. Chapter 2 explains exactly how he does this, and we get this very strange story about first forming this man out of the dust and then bringing him to a place of, of deep, deep peace and then doing this operation on him. So why did God do it this way? You know, if you think about how he could have done it, it's like could have made Eve out of the dust as well. Why not? He could have, you know, made them both at the same time. I mean, there's a there's a hundred different ways he could have done it, but he did it this way. So why did God do it this way? And you know, for a lot of history, this story has been treated as basically fodder for wedding sermons. It's like, you know, preachers and rabbis, they need something to say at a wedding. And this story makes a good kind of jumping off point. And they say, well, you know, it's, it shows. And then, then we kind of do midrash on the story. We kind of make up things that are like maybe, you know, he didn't, take, he didn't take stuff from Adam's foot and make Eve because then, you know, Adam would stomp on her. You know, and he didn't take stuff from Adam's head to make Eve because then Eve would dominate him. But no, he took it from the side of Adam, and therefore, you know, they're partners and stuff like that. And then, so you say stuff like that, and then, then you usually make a joke, and everybody laughs, ah, ha, 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 you know, it's a, it's a great wedding. Look, I'm telling you the tools of the trade here. I'm, letting you, I'm pulling the curtain back a little, right? But, you know, God is not arbitrary. He is not arbitrary. He never does things for no reason at all. He always has a point. He's always teaching us something by everything that he does. Well, what is it here? Well, let me suggest to you that what we see happening here is one person and then another distinct person who's made of the same substance as the first person. So Eve is a completely distinct person and yet, she's of the same substance. In fact, you could even say 
that Eve is homoousius with Adam. Now, when I say that, Eve is homoousius of Adam, does that remind you of anything? Anybody here, does that, you can raise your hand. Oh, this uh, intelligent looking seminary student in the third row. What does this remind you of, Josh? And what was it referring to in the creeds? The Trinity. Thank you. Yes, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, one of the most important meetings the church has ever had. That's when the church decided this is actually how we are to talk about God. Because God is actually three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. None is greater than less than the other. And yet, the first person and the second person of the Trinity are of the same substance. They're homoousios. And that was very important. This is how we are to talk about God. So now you think about this. When God decides he's going to create his image, what does he do? He creates one, and then the other one is begotten, in a way, of the first, is made of the same substance, equal, and yet distinct. So what happens? These two people come together, and they're of the same substance. This is a point that's well brought out by Michael Reeves, a Trinitarian theologian, and he talks about the ofness of Eve. But God makes this and, and uh, this this operation, and you know it it it, gets, it garners even more support when He gives us sort of the purpose of this other one that He's that He's bringing forth. Right? What is what does God call her Eve in verse 18? He says, I'm going to make what? A helper. And if you've ever looked at that, some of you might know that that word then gets later applied as a title to God, especially when God is showing his power, especially in a, in a statement of the climax of God's power. Like when the psalmist says, you know, you've done all these things for me. You've lifted me up. You've redeemed me. You are my helper uses the same word. So what's being expressed here is that God's saying there's, there's this divine power that's going to be coming from this second person for the operation. So you see, it's coming together then, if this is so, in close relationship. When we do that, when we come together, one another in close relationship, we speak, we mirror, we image God themself, if I could put it that way. The Trinity committed life together within themselves. Now, that means if we are going to understand marriage, we need to talk about the Trinity. And that might be um, a real turnoff for many of you. I know many of you think, you know, when people start talking about this Three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, none is greater or less than the other, but they're one God. It's like, it's just, you lose me. I don't understand. It's confusing. Or maybe you might be uh, feeling like Clint Eastwood said in, in uh, one of his movies uh, when he was kind of mocking this, this concept. Um, and he says, he says, what is it? Is God sort of like um, 
snap, crackle, and pop. It's sort of like, is God like Rice Krispies? So if you're feeling that way, it's like this is confusing to you. I want to tell you something this morning to help you understand the Trinity. Because if you're ever going to even begin to understand the Trinity, this is the one thing that you have to know. They're crazy about each other. They are crazy about each other. They talk about each other all the time. They, th they seem to think about each other all the time. They're trying to do things for each other all the time. And that, friends, is what the Trinity is about. What you have are two persons who then come together. And when they come together, their very communion brings forth a third person. You have two who are in passionate relationship, and from that union proceeds a third person. Their communion itself produces eternally a third person who then pervades and promotes the agreement of the two. And that is why we get married. That's why we have families. Now you say, now wait a second. Does that mean that you're telling me that the members of the Trinity are married? Well, you know, it's not exactly so, because God is God. He is so far beyond us. And You know, I was talking the last time about this tremendous invitation that he has that he's going to give to us to understand him, to see him. And there's, there's a lot that we're going to understand further about God, but we're never going to completely understand the depths of who God is because he's God and we are not. So we'll never completely understand it. But there's something very true about God being spoken here, that when he maps his image onto creation, it comes out as male and female, who then come into relationship. So marriage reveals something about God. And when we learn about God, we see how to be married. So let me talk to you about that. Because, you know, we, we, we have to realize that what we're experiencing is an overflow of their relationship. In fact, the reason you're sitting here, the reason that we have salvation is because of what happened between them in their relationship. It really came about because they made an agreement with each other because they're crazy about each other. And, you know, in Reformed circles, and Reformed theological circles, it's sometimes called the pactum salutis. But that's just a Latin term. What it really means is that they made a series of passionate promises to one another in order to get this job done. When we messed up the creation and something had to be done, they made an agreement before each other. And the Almighty took the hands of the Beloved, whom we know as Jesus Christ, 
But this happened a long time ago, way, way before you and I existed, way before the foundation of the world. The Almighty took the hands of the Beloved, looked into the eyes of the Beloved, and made some promises. He said, I am going to promise to give you everything you need to perform this monumental work. I'm going to prepare a fit body for you to be able to move and heal and save and bring this good news to the people of Israel. Then he promised that he would give him gifts, that he would endow him with the beloved with certain graces that would enable him to accomplish this task with finesse. And that is what he did. And then he promised that he would give him his spirit without measure, which beautified the beloved. And then he promised that he would subdue all of the beloved's enemies, because in doing this, there would be many enemies. And the Almighty promised he would subdue every enemy that he had, even the greatest enemy of all, and that was death. And he would do that by raising him from the dead. This was all, all promised, passionate oath that the Almighty made to the Beloved. And the Beloved, in turn, also made a promise. I mean, I could go on about what the Almighty did, but the point is that it took great attentiveness, great effort on the Almighty's part, daily putting out to arrange the circumstances of life for the flourishing of the, of the beloved one, again and again, whether he felt like it or not, because of the promise. And a beloved also swore to humble the self, to take on human nature, to be born of a woman, to bear with the infirmities that come from be, being a human being forever and to do it without complaint to be basically seen as less than the beloved really was to go under the law and to pay for others sins so that we could inherit eternal life now, I don't have to tell you how costly that submission was. We've been singing about it all morning. But the beloved did it, trusting in the Almighty and out of passion for the Almighty. And then together they agreed to multiply that image that they had, their image, that the beloved would make disciples and the Almighty would do his part to give the beloved all of these images multiplied of them. So, you know, God loves you. He really does. But that love comes out of a passion. The Almighty's passion for the beloved. And Christ came for you. He really did come for you. But he went he came and he went to the cross out of esteem for the Almighty. 
And when the day was done and it was all over, they had a reunion. And let me tell you, that reunion was beyond the most stirring climax of any romantic movie. I mean, it was fireworks. So this is how we can look at marriage. It's a reliving of the Pactum Salutis. It's reliving the promises that they made to each other. Marriage is a promise held to because your love is a reality greater than what you happen to be feeling at the moment. And when you recognize that, you can achieve marital bliss, marital happiness. When you realize that your marriage is, is, is greater than your marriage, then it comes. Husbands, you were made to swear these oaths to her. <clears throat> you were made to attend to, the, to her flourishing and the flourishing of her children. To pay attention to the needs of her body. To en endow her with graces to do the job. To give her of your spirit without measure. And to subdue her enemies. And to do so when you feel like you can't deal with her anymore. <laughs> to do so when you feel like it's not what you signed up for. To do so when you feel like you want to just run away. But you don't because of the promise. Wives, you were made to make these promises to him. You were made to make this promise of not always being all that you could be for his sake, for being constrained and under those constraints, bringing your powers to bear on the mission, to bear the pain of children, to pay for sins that are not your own, basically to become Christ. And you were made to continue in those promises even when you feel like you just don't care anymore. Even when you feel like you'll never say it, but you might think, oh, no, I married the wrong one. Even when you feel that way, it's not the case. And you don't because of the promise. This is what your marriage is about. It's about being enabled by the spirit of the Almighty and the Beloved to enact these promises, to push through on these promises, and to experience that bliss that they enjoy. And there is nothing like it. And then your marriage is about the coming together, the reunion, which we experience, you know, as sex, 
in the beginning. It starts with sex. It doesn't end that way. I'm not going to talk too much about it. I'm going to talk about it next week, actually. So if you're interested in sex, you can come back next week. I'm going to talk about sex and singleness. But that, too, is speaking the image of, of the ecstasy that they enjoy, these members of the Trinity. And it's just the start. So let us enter into this because you, of all people, are uniquely equipped to enter into the glory of marriage and to stay there. I don't know what's going to happen with this country. Maybe this country has gone too far. Maybe a revival can help. But my concern is for you that you not become one of these statistics. And you don't have to. You don't have to because you have the Holy Spirit of the Almighty and the Beloved. So you are empowered to make these promises and to keep them. Amen.